0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of Porn Brain Reboot. I'm Dr. Trish Lee. I will be, uh, I'm very excited to have a guest with us today so that we can not only motivate and inspire you to leave pornography and compulsive sexual behaviors behind, but most importantly, empower you with coaching and tools and strategies. So I have a special guest with me today, uh, Andrew Suskind, and he will introduce himself a little bit in just a second. I have my Kindle out so that I make sure I get the title right. It's not about the sex moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. And I love this topic and we have so much to dig into. So without further ado, uh, Andrew, if you take a second just to introduce yourself and tell everybody out there what has inspired you to not only write this book, but dedicate yourself to this line of work.
1: Thanks so much, Trish. Thank you for inviting me to be with you today. And I am calling in from Los Angeles this morning, actually Santa Monica, for those of you who know the difference. And I have been out here since the late 80s, and I've been practicing since 1991. And, you know, I I have to say that that this whole project, this, this book has been such a passion project that is about my personal and professional experience <clears throat> and I, I always say that it could have been an autobiography but I'm not quite that narcissistic <laughs> so I decided I to write about the, the subject rather than about me and I'm just so glad to talk with you today because there's so much to cover and there's so many people still suffering out there and that's what we're here for is to help them hopefully have some tools and strategies to to move through and beyond their compulsive sexual behaviors.
0: Yeah, thank you. And that is so important because not only are there so many people suffering alone in isolation right now, but we are on the precipice of this being of much greater magnitudes into the future. Um, And part of my nonprofit organization that I'm establishing is to create a digital program to get into sex education programs in schools so we can teach kids. What not to do and the dangers of it. So, you know, thank you for bringing that up. That you know, there's so many people out there that need need this. um, Some steps. So let's dig in. I love how you uh, were joking about. You know, you're not that narcissistic, and that that is really funny. And we're gonna dig into the narcissistic bubble, as you call it. But before we get there, I think that's such an important topic. Uh, I'd love to open with thinking about perfectionism. And in your book, you talk about how perfectionism in terms of how it unfolds in a person's behavior, that it's about fear and Exercising control over some fear and talking about one reason being growing up in a chaotic family. And I love a quote that you put is that you felt a million miles away emotionally from your siblings and that you had chronically unhappy adversarial parents. And uh, I grew up in a family of six children. So, and my husband did too, not so ironically, if you know what I mean. And uh, we both come from families of three boys and three girls. Again, not so ironically, we have three boys and three girls. So, uh, you know, you talk about intergenerational passing on of these patterns also, but to go back to the thought of perfectionism, fear of control in a world that feels out of control leads to shame which leads to envy, not necessarily leading, but they're related. Envy being a toxic feeling, and then that is existing in secrecy. And I'd love to start there if you have some thoughts uh, of your concepts and what you'd like to share on that.
1: Of course. Thanks, Trish. So just to back up for a moment, I have been in the 12-step rooms myself since the early 90s, and I've been working as a therapist since the early 90s. And so it's been almost 30 years of personal and professional experience, you know, both learning about myself and watching others learn about themselves. And so I'm going to illustrate perfectionism from my own background, because that's what I know best. I absolutely grew up as a child perfectionist and it wasn't just being perfect. It was so extreme that if I didn't get the A plus where if I didn't do something absolutely right, I would be devastated. I would cry. I would, I would feel like the world was coming to an end. It was, it was absolutely excruciating for me. So we talk about perfectionism sometimes in lighter terms like oh that person's a perfectionist but we're really talking about deep suffering and you're right it, it really stemmed for me from growing up in a family a family that was quite turbulent a family that just didn't know how to love one another. I always say that underneath it all, we did love one another. We just had no clue how to love one another. And so my perfectionism started from a very, very young age. I can't even remember a time when I wasn't a perfectionist and it was absolutely a survival strategy for me as a way for me to cope. It was a way for me to try and navigate the the, the pain that I was surrounded by in, in my home. And so, how that relates to my own compulsive sexual behavior is, is really interesting because as a kid, I was very rule bound. I I played by the rules. I did everything very, very closely to what I was told to do. I was well-behaved. I was really careful about what I did and did not do or say. And what's interesting is there was a part of me underneath all of that, that, was really wanting to be imperfect and to break the rules. And that was, for me, where the compulsive sexual behavior came into fruition because it was we could think of it as the shadow part of us, or we could think about it as a light part of us, but but either way, we're, we're talking about how can we be fully ourselves? And part of being fully myself was actually being a rule breaker. And it wasn't, the safest way to do it at the time there was some danger involved there was some um, suffering involved for sure and a lot of loneliness and a lot of uh, hollowness around it but what what it did do is it allowed me to explore different parts of myself and in a way it, it 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 became very complicated right because it did turn into shame. Right. It didn't. It did turn into that feeling of, huh, is there something wrong with me? Is there something inherently bad about me? And and that's that's a, a, a you know, a secret that I carried for a long time, that I, I thought that somehow I I wasn't lovable. I wasn't good enough. And and so I would look around the world, and I would see like all these happy people and happy couples, and and people, you know, getting really um, a lot of satisfaction out of their their lives. And that just wasn't me. I was I was kind of living this double life of, on the one hand, achieving, like you said, and and being actually an overachiever, and underneath of it, just not quite getting traction because I would I had these opposing forces.
0: Yeah, I love that. And people will comment on my YouTube channel saying like, uh, you know, I don't think I need to leave these sexual behaviors behind because I'm rocking it. And, you know, I got a great job. I'm saving money. And, you know, that's part of the icing, the justifying of it and rationalizing of it, because like you talk about, it's compartmentalization and the isolation and the loneliness And the secrecy and then the shame it creates is the cost of that. And I love how you talk about integrating our whole selves. And the book is really wonderful. Uh, And and I'm not saying this just to say it, (laughs) but everybody out there who's listening, I know people are always looking for resources. And I really love this book because it I I got sucked into it page by page and it all resonated with me. And as as I started taking notes, I couldn't stop taking notes because every piece led to another important piece. Um, I liked in the book how you talked about, uh, you know, that it probably was no fun to play Monopoly with you because of the (laughs) amount of, you know, of upholding the rules that you did. And that is a mechanism that so many people that I know in my personal world who struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors and the people I work with that either they have started, you know, following these rules by themselves inherently from a young age, or they learned along the way that they need to do that. So then to try to balance the whole self, they have the acting out behaviors but that is the attempt, not the satisfaction. You know, you talk about not ever getting satisfaction. I love that. And, and one action step that I put down when I was reading that piece, and I always call it imperfect action. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm terrified. A lot of the times I'm terrified to do the things that I do mm-hmm. because I know it, will, it can never be perfect. But mm-hmm. I had to teach myself over the years that doing it and learning from it. And like you talk about in the book, a saying of mine for 30 years has been enjoy the journey so that I can learn to enjoy the fun of creating a podcast and not worrying about if I make mistakes. And, but I still have to remind myself of that on a moment to moment Mm -hmm. basis. So, you know, an action step that I, cause I like to give people action steps too. an Mm -hmm. action step that I. Um, took away from that section was imperfect action, even though you might have to teach yourself that and remind yourself of that on a daily basis can be a really good way for you to keep moving forward and becoming a little bit messier version to be able to integrate yourself. Um, Two takeaways that I put down and maybe you can springboard off of them that you talk about um, Mm are to acknowledge your vulnerability. and. Be willing to share your true self and having mm-hmm. honest conversations. I tell people all the time, go back to your partner and tell them something real about yourself that you may not have shared, and it will make you invulnerable. The vulnerability leads to invulnerability becomes because it becomes a strength. And then secondly, you talk about embracing your excellence And I really, really love that. If you can maybe share an action step for everybody based upon those concepts.
1: Sure. So, First of all, just to circle back, I, I have to clarify that I am a, mono, a monopoly champ, so I don't <laughs> want anybody to get the wrong oh, idea sure. about <laughs> that. <laughs> um, I, I practiced, um, but but I think what what I also want to highlight is we're talking about the double life, right? Because on the one hand, a lot of people would have looked at me in in high school and college and beyond college as having my my um stuff together (laughs) and 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 somehow you know i I looked on the surface organized and and somehow um able to be competent and capable when it came to academics etc and i had friends and whatnot but but on the other side of it i think what we're really talking about is that underbelly of of just not feeling Um, like there's a reason to wake up in the morning, basically. I mean, that's how bad it can get is is we're talking about existential questions of, you know, what gives my life meaning, right? And and I I say all of that because I I believe that that's an action step for sure, which is asking those big existential questions with emotionally reliable people in your life and being able to ask yourself, what, what is it that would really give you a reason to wake up every morning? And, and, and what would be one small thing that would make the biggest difference, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's just going in that direction for a moment. I think there is something so important here about purpose and meaning. And go ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah definitely. Well, I just wanted to say that I also wrote down that I really love what you talk about Finding emotionally reliable people, because yeah. for many people in this space of compulsive sexual behavior, they didn't have an emotionally reliable person in their right. past. And I would encourage listeners to think: Did you have an emotionally reliable person that you could go to in the in your past that would be there for you, wouldn't judge you? Uh, something I've learned from this journey in being in this world, personally and professionally for years is to hold space for people. I emailed one of the first therapists that I work with. And I said, you have given me the greatest gift. You held space for me and you taught me how to hold space for other people. Like that gift is the gift that keeps on giving. And that's an emotionally reliable person who you can go to that person. They're not going to bounce on you because things are muddy or tricky And, you know, finding an emotionally responsible, reliable person in your current world can be a game changer. And you write in the book that, you know, 12 step groups can give you that person, that sponsor, that leader, a coach, a therapist, if you don't have people. And many of us don't because we grew up in the world with emotionally unreliable people then we create a world with emotionally unreliable people and then you look around i've been trying to find the emotionally mature people it's been a sort of running joke for 10 years i'm like right. i know all the places they aren't i haven't found <laughs> the place where they are yet but yeah. that's why a therapist or a coach or a group is so yeah. important because they're right. there that's where they are um that's so right. i just wanted to springboard to that and then you know kind of continue our conversation on purpose In every, I have hundreds of YouTube videos trying to encourage people in this journey. In almost every video, I say, get on purpose in your work, your relationships, and your hobbies. Mm -hmm. Nothing more powerful than purpose in the present and the future. And you say this in the book, which again, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like I was, you know, reading my own writing type of thing Mm -hmm. that that can be integrated with your past. It can exist alongside of your past, is what you say. And that I like to think that we can learn from the past, integrate it and resolve it and not necessarily need to go back there so often because so many people keep going back. And when I work with them, I'm like, go back there to learn from it and integrate it, unlock neuro rigidity. And we'll talk about neurological regulation in a bit, but unlock that neuro rigidity that gets Created by trauma and move into the future with purpose. Um, did you want to share something else about purpose? Um,
1: <clears throat> there, there's so much to say about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and,
0: exactly. And at, at the same time,
1: the yeah, well, exactly, listen, right? <laughs> right, right. What, what I want to whittle it down to, just on a personal note, is it. It, it does boil down to love. It boils down to relationships. And one of the, my beliefs is that everyone who is in some kind of compulsive sexual pattern, if we scratch the surface, underneath it is going to be a desire to feel lovable and loved. And, and so it's not everything, right? But it's it's the heart of what we're talking about today. And, and so I, I feel that it's. I'm always a work in progress and that receiving love, I'm better at giving love than receiving love, like many of us, but receiving love is a lifelong challenge and a lifelong healing. And and you're right, the whole idea of emotionally reliable people, it really comes from my own experience. I I was lucky enough to have an unconditionally loving grandmother Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and my grandmother was amazing because she was the touchstone for me in the midst of every storm and and so i i was lucky enough to have that person and for those who can go back in their childhoods and remember someone doesn't have to be more than one or two people but someone who was there for them unconditionally and and fully that's the template for love, right? I carry my grandmother with me every single day, even though she's been gone for 23 years. She's with me all the time. And is the heart of this book actually. But if we don't have that person, that's okay too, because like you said, it can start with finding the best therapist you can possibly see, finding the best coach, the best sponsor, um, group therapy, you know, uh, surrounding yourself, whether yeah, it's, as many
0: resources yeah. as possible. Resources. I, I know from my, for me, it's interesting because you know I'm an educated person. I'm smart. I'm just inherently smart. But I uh-huh. didn't even. My point about that is, and and I know many people out there are going to res. Hopefully, I think will resonate with this idea. I didn't really realize any of this until about ten years ago. Right. So, and the point being is like. My home, my family felt loving ish, but it's all I knew. But when I discovered these patterns, my parents still can't tell me they love me. I told my dad, I love him last night. It was his 81st birthday. He told me, mm. thank you. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and, and like, I can count on one hand how many times they've and been able to say that to me, but that's their capacity. Right. And I, I, yeah don't hold anything. That's the intergenerational piece. I don't hold anything against that. But at the same time, because it's all I knew, I didn't know there was more or it could be different or it should be different. And you can gain so much out of that. And uh, every Friday I do a YouTube live trying to answer people's Mm -hmm. questions and just be Mm -hmm. a little bit more myself instead of just making videos. And someone asked me in the chat, like what my definition of love is And it's exactly what you're talking about, but I didn't really know that. And actually, I had to teach myself it within my relationship with my husband. We had to teach ourselves and each other it across. We've been married 19 and a half years, and it's a pretty Mm -hmm. new part of our journey, honestly. Like, and that my Mm -hmm. answer was that, you know, you can be there for that person, not have to take on all their emotions when they're upset, not have Mm -hmm. to solve all of it for them. Mm -hmm. With all the shouldas and couldas and wouldas that you talk about in the book, too. Uh, And this way, just being able to be there and be able to handle difficult emotions and be that space. And, you know, so I didn't even know that was something I could have had as a child. because I didn't really have anybody in the difficult times in my life. There wasn't anybody who could be there for me. I think they wanted to some of them but just mm-hmm. didn't know how to. So I think, you know, finding a person, if I would have known how important it was to go find somebody earlier, I would have done it find a therapist, find a group, right. find a coach. And, you know, even I've been on a personal development journey, but one that's more, you know, through books and taking programs in sure. that. But then when I found mentors, it was a game changer in my life. People who could reflect back yeah. to me and, You know, so I think that's a really interesting piece. Um, I I just
1: wanted to add that there's there's so many different flavors of love. Right. And I've always been a heat seeking missile from the time (laughs) I was a kid. I would I would get adopted by different families in the neighborhood. And and (laughs) and and yet what what was so sad about that in some ways is that it was longings inside of me that were just so hungry. For warmth and for acceptance, and and I found it. I was I was really fortunate, but but I I, I want to remind our, our listeners that you know we're we're really talking about the core of human existence. We're biologically wired for connection. We didn't know that that long ago, mm-hmm. right? But now we know we're biologically wired for connection. So really, what we're talking about is that that birthright of of finding our people I, a friend of mine says there's your people and there's the rest of the world and it's your <laughs> job to find your people
0: exactly and i love what you said too because i tell people this and i feel this way is that you don't need a million people you just yeah. need a few because people will write to me i'm never going to find people you know there's fifty thousand women in my city and a hundred thousand men i'm like what does that have to do with anything All you need is one. All you need is one person. You need two, two people. You know, if you're lucky, Uh, my husband always says that his father would say, you know, if you could find one good friend that lasts across a lifetime, you're doing great. And, you know, I feel that way. I feel that way too. And, you know, it's an interesting concept. I love that I have a big ampersand hanging in my house to the and Mm. symbol because connection is so important. And, you know, I'm aware of that, but I like to see that symbol and i love what you said too if you i don't know if you've seen the movie moulin rouge it's uh-huh. an older movie it's a great movie but in the there the one line is that the the greatest uh thing in life is to be loved and to love in return and i've always really loved that line because that is the you know the secret sauce to a happy life
1: yeah and to sustainable recovery right I think I think what what sometimes gets muddied in the conversations is that there's so many ideas about what helps people um, have sustainable, satisfying recovery, whatever that recovery might be, whether it's addiction recovery, trauma recovery, grief recovery. But what but, but really counts is how, how do you have love around you and how do you have relationships that can sustain you?
0: Yeah. That's an awesome point where I half joke that every person should be in recovery. You know, recovery has a negative stigma and on national recovery day, I made a video saying like, if, if you're not in recovery, you are missing out. Recovery is recovering your authentic self. That is the, the job of being alive. So, uh, Let's get busy in recovery. And thank you for retuning me into, you know, that it's an important relationships and that connection and that ampersand, that and symbol is vital for sustainable long-term recovery because, you know, people will reach out and say, you know, I'm able to get this far 10 days, 40 days, 70 days, but I'm not able to go past that. You know, I don't know why. And there's pieces that are missing. And this is one of them. If you can't establish that purpose and that connection, then you can stay away for an amount of time, but you can't anchor into the things that are necessary for sustainable recovery. Uh, It's okay. We, if we can pivot into um, the narcissistic bubble is the way that you refer to it. And I really love this conceptualization of it. And uh, just to kind of frame where my thoughts are in the book, you talk about being consumed with sexual obsessions So seeking out immediate self-gratification and Mm -hmm. as a, again, as a tool that's necessary to feel okay and to feel safe, um, but that it's self-centeredness and that it's not other centeredness. And that's something that people can benefit from learning about unconditional love and being able to do that. And one point you talk about in the book, which I adore, is the idea that you can start practicing this with pets. And, you know, it's, it's such a great action step for people because it is hard to say to a person, I love you and hear thank you, not hear I love you too, when that's all you want to hear is I love you too. Mm-hmm. And so that's risky. And the fear of rejection is big and real for people. And I'm acutely aware of that. But my dog Chewbacca, when I walk in and he <laughs> is just thrilled to see me no matter what mood I'm in and no matter what I did to him yesterday,
1: Uh I'm
0: able to love him. He's able to love me back. So if you could Mm -hmm. speak about the narcissistic bubble that is unintentionally created, which Mm -hmm. is an attempt to feel better at all costs is what you write Mm -hmm. in the book. If you could share a little about that, I'd really appreciate it.
1: Of course. So narcissism often gets talked about in very, widespread and kind of misunderstood ways. It's and
0: popularized, I think, which is really why been. I think your insight's amazing on it, which is thank you for starting with that, because that's why I would like you to share. Of
1: mm-hmm. course. And 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 so what what I'm really talking about is what happens to the brain, which and as you know, Trish, the, the brain gets hijacked. And and part of that hijacking system is that it gets so hyper focused on, in in many cases, on the hunt and on the search, and and finally on some kind of conquest, whatever that might be, whether it's porn, whether it's um, you know going out um, looking for uh, any kind of an, uh, anonymous sex, you you name it, and and so it it's interesting because my recollection, and it's been a while since I was in the bubble, but my recollection is that it's almost like if you can imagine this plastic bubble that gets formed around me and I can see everything out there, but people can't really see me. I'm feeling profoundly isolated, but I'm also hyper-focused on on, on getting something, right? I'm, I'm in that that kind of search mode. And so it becomes so obsessive and, of course, so compulsive that um, nothing else matters, right? Mm-hmm. That it's generally a 24-7 kind of, um, of search where my mind is always in that direction. It, it's an experience of this is my priority. Nothing else really counts. I'll, I'll go through the motions, but this is what I really want to be focusing on. and. All the while in the bubble, there's that feeling of, of of secrecy and shame and feeling like um there's something terribly, terribly wrong with me. And and that's where it usually it's that that's the the dark part, right? The other part of it is there's something very self-protective in it, right? Because if I'm suffering, the bubble actually acts as sort of this pseudo-protection. Mm-hmm. And and so how I would um, describe the bubble in terms of how we move beyond it is it, it is about finally recognizing that you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? That that comes from program. And and also that that feeling of, huh, is this how I really want to live my life, right? different people hit bottom in different ways. But but I knew that there was a part of me that had a lot of generosity of spirit. I knew from the time I was a little kid that I was a generous soul. But I didn't know how to tap into that. And so that's where something happened when I went to my first meeting, where I saw others wanting to get better, and where they were being of service to one another they were setting up the coffee, they were setting up the chairs, they were uh, giving out their number in case somebody needed to talk uh, about what was going on for them. And I was terrified, by the way, I, I didn't understand all of that generosity. And it was, really. it was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot for me to take in. And and yet, that's the movement is like you said before, moving from that self centeredness to other centeredness and other centeredness is is really what makes the world go round. I mean, it's so much about connecting on a on a deeper level and from one heart space to another.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for talking about it. When you speak, I'm so glad we're talking because when mm-hmm. you speak, it gives me the same feeling that I had reading your book. It like you describing the bubble literally makes me ache on the inside. It literally Mm -hmm. brings me to tears, the the feelings that you're talking about. And in the book, you talk about it as as seduction and fantasy and intrigue, like you said, about the seeking and the conquest for validation. And then it leads to all those other feelings and it never leads to satisfaction. And That just Mm -hmm. wounds me because I don't want people to have to live in that space when they can live a life of connection and, you know, start doing for other people and learning a life of service. And the service brings them, you know, where they need to get as simple as putting up a table with coffee. That's a great start. And, you know, being people when I speak with people, I know they're very concerned about making new relationships, finding a partner, finding new <laughs> friends, and a way to be of service in the here and the now is being a kinder friend to the friends you have and serving them in small ways. And I have to try to do this, honestly, still, because I'm naturally, service is probably one of the lower things in my, uh, I do it in my own right, I guess, but you know, being able to to do that for other people so that I can stay in the place where I feel good about what I'm doing. So I really appreciate you talking um, about that. And in the book too, you talk about specialness and talking about, you know, looking for the fantasy, it becomes, this is the narcissistic piece is that it's looking for a special partner or being able, being needed to be seen and heard and respected in the right way. You know, I think a lot of these qualities, if people don't know what narcissism is, these are the qualities that you you speak about. Entitlement and getting what you want when you want it in toddler-esque fashion is a really cool way that you put it. And lacking empathy. And we know from addiction recovery that growth of empathy is important, and people ask me all the time, "How do I know that I'm getting better at recovery? How do I know I'm moving forward?" These are some of those key indicators that you don't need to get what you want immediately. That self gratification to be able to feel okay, you're able to delay that gratification, and you're mm-hmm. able to, uh, you know, go out of your way to empathize with what the people in your world are feeling. Um, one thing that I just wanted to um, call attention to and then we can move on to neuroregulation so we don't run mm-hmm. out of time is that sure. how the how these tendencies these narcissistic tendencies lead to dynamics in relationships that can really throw people off in terms of codependency and in the mm-hmm. book you talk about and I think it's very important for people who don't know about this concept of the distancer and the pursuer mm-hmm. and how, One partner becomes the distancer. Uh, Many times it's the partner who does have compulsive uh, sexual behaviors. They're distancing themselves, again, as a protective mechanism, and that that makes a codependent partner who's perfectly suited for that person to become the pursuer in terms of making sure that person's needs are met or, you know, that's the role that they fulfill and they feel good about it. And then, yes, those roles can kind of swap back and forth in the book you talk about, and I say this, you know, do more giving than, than taking. It's an easy concept, an easy action step, especially if you're in a partnership, do more giving than taking and pursue your partner, pursue people in your life. Don't have, don't distance yourself from them and make them pursue, pursue you. And um, I don't know if you have a thought on that, and then we can move on to neuroregulation, So we don't.
1: Don't miss out. <laughs> sure. So the the only thought I, I would add is is back to the idea of pets. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because um I'm a dog lover and I had an amazing dog when I grew up, and I have an amazing dog now. And they are truly our teachers because their form of love doesn't even compare to the way humans express love. And I'm gonna get even more simple for a moment. If you have a plant that you water every day or every few days, that could be a beginning of giving and being generous to something alive, even if you don't think you have a green thumb. And so it, it can come in so many shapes and forms, but you're right, there's something about that experience of knowing that We have something to offer and to putting our best foot forward rather than waiting, rather than um, somehow um, getting into a pattern of of wanting, 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 rather than giving, giving, giving. And and, and in my experience, the the giving is truly the the healer and part of long-term recovery.
0: Yeah. My husband, we have tons of plants around here. He, he has a green thumb. We have, they're beautiful. He keeps them. He waters, he piddles as he calls it, you know, he gets up Uh and waters everything. And then one time he told me, you know, you should get some plants and, you know, keep them alive. I'm like, dude, I have six kids. We have two dogs, two cats. (laughs) And you, I keep you alive and you keep the plants alive. I am keeping those plants alive every time home, and there's dinner. (laughs) That's my role in keeping the plants alive, but uh, you know, it's, it's, he loves it and it's really (laughs) fulfilling for him to see all these plants. I actually have an herb garden. I started keeping an herb garden after that because I like to cook. So this way Mm -hmm. I have fresh herbs and it's very validating when they're there for me. And I know I've grown them and then I make delicious food out of them, which is really fun. So I have, Have dabbled there. Um, Okay, so if we can shift gears and move into thinking about neurological regulation and dysregulation, and Mm -hmm. as that plays out in self regulation, which then Mm -hmm. plays out in a person's ability to regulate themselves and not need to go to something, whether that be sex or alcohol or drugs or love, you know, need to go to something else to keep them in the middle. I talk about it as being in the middle. And before I wax and lean about about that, I'd love for you to share kind of your thoughts on reclaiming regulation as you you talk about it.
1: Sure. So I also want to clarify in, in this vein that when we're talking about regulating the nervous system, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about events in our past that were too much to process at the time, and get stored. And And we don't have time to go into all of the details, but but they get stored. And, and so addiction and compulsion, in my opinion, is inseparable from the nervous system and from trauma, yep, right? I call temper. it yeah, <laughs> right, and I, I I also call it brokenheartedness um, because it's something that each and every one of us has, and each of, and every one of us is healing from. And so, in a nutshell, the idea of w- what you're talking about, um, I sometimes call it the zone when we feel most calm, peaceful, and grounded when we feel most resourceful, most resilient, most regulated, and maybe even buoyant if we're lucky. And that's obviously where we wanna live most of the time. But then life comes along and something happens and it it bumps us out of that zone. And oftentimes, for instance, let's say I get in a fight with a, a, an old friend. We have a, a conflict of some type. Chances are it looks like it's about a present tense argument, but there's something rooted in that argument. Maybe I'm afraid that he's going to abandon me. Maybe I'm afraid he's going to rage at me. You know, there's all kinds of things that can happen underneath. And and that's the part that's important to take note of, is that we're, we're talking about present tense dysregulations. Um, and let me just say briefly that we can upregulate into things like panic and rage and we can downregulate into things like depression, disconnection, shutting down, that kind of thing. And either way, it's actually an opportunity for the nervous system to recalibrate because something has happened that is is in the moment pushing us or bumping us into that dysregulation and The goal, of course, is how can we find our way back to that regulated state, that regulated, resourceful, resilient state more efficiently? It's a much more complex answer, but what I will say is we've learned so much about somatic psychology these last 10, 15, 20 years. I happen to be trained in somatic experiencing as well as brain spotting. Mm -hmm. But I I really recommend anyone who's suffering with various kinds of dysregulations and trauma and brokenheartedness to consider somatic therapy of any kind because cognitive therapy can be helpful, but somatic therapy really goes to the part of the brain that needs to heal.
0: Yeah. And I think the exact same thing, what I recommend to people, and actually we've never talked about this. So I don't know if you have heard of this or know that I recommend it to people. I'm a neurofeedback practitioner. My husband and I have a private practice, but, and of course, neurofeedback can be costly because it's costly to provide to people. You know, people reach out to me all the time. They're like, you know, I, I would love to do that. You're top tier neurofeedback program, but you know, can you reduce the price? And I'm like, I wish I could, but there's expenses. But what there is in the world is what something called the Muse headband, which I don't sell. I always tell people buy it from the manufacturer. I'm an affiliate because I'm a Muse ambassador. So I give people a link where they can get 15% off, but it's an EEG headband. It has five sensors Mm. in the frontal lobe, which Uh we know from sexual addiction science and porn addiction science that the frontal lobe becomes deactivated Mm -hmm. when it's when it's going back to sexual compulsion. At the same time, there's two sensors on the temporal lobes. And we know that the temporal lobes directly are connected to the reward center in the midbrain. And you talk about, you know, you can't think yourself out of this many times. That's what the cognitive behavioral therapy strategies are. Mm -hmm. And what this headband does is it teaches your brain to make more of optimal processing speed, is the way that I talk about it. It's that processing speed that's in the middle, the regulated speed. And I mm-hmm. talk about it as a pendulum, like you're talking right. about up regulation right. and down regulation. Uh-huh. If you're feeling anxious, That's upregulation and uptick. If you're feeling overwhelmed is the way I talk about it, Mm -hmm. then, or depression, it's a downregulation or Mm -hmm. pendulum swings in the opposite. And what this headband does is if you use it consistently and frequently, it will teach your brain to make more of that speed in the middle, which Hmm. then allows a person to be able to use the strategies that they need to be able to, to be able ultimately to be successful And this way, and in the book, to bring it back to the book, because reading this again, gave me one of those pains in my soul. And, you know, I talk about brokenheartedness as the holes or the wounds that we all have. We have holes and we look for somebody else or something else to fill those holes. We Mm -hmm. have wounds that we look for other people to heal. We have to find the holes and the wounds and fill them ourselves. And then we become Mm -hmm. a whole person who can go into the world and engage with it full. So you don't have to look for the validation. Right, And, you know, the use of this headband or, you know, somatic experiencing, many other neuromodulation techniques help people to do this first. EMDR is another one you talk about in the book too, that can help kind of unlock that brain, make it more neuroplastic. So right. then you can move forward in a better spot to be able to go to work on the things that you need to do. But the story from the book is that you talk about something stressful happens and you're you get in a fight with your partner and there's this uptick in your nervous system it goes from you know if you have a sexually compulsive behavior your baseline's not even at a healthy level your baseline in this regulation is higher than a healthy person's so then something stressful happens you have this uptick where that would create anxiety for many people, but it creates this urge to go act out sexually right. because that's the coping mechanism. So mm-hmm. you feel it <laughs> immediately as the desire to go do the thing that you do in terms right. of the sexual acting out behavior. Many people don't know that. And that's what I really liked about you <laughs> pointing that out in the book. Especially mm-hmm. at the beginning stages of recovery, they think it's a libido or a sexual mm-hmm. desire. It's mm-hmm. actually the cry for regulation, yeah. and so I describe it that way. And that's what saddens me on the inside is that there's so many people who, and something comes at them a stressor that mm-hmm. they can handle if they if they can bring themselves back to this regulated state, they can handle that stressor and move towards it and move through it to resolve it. Instead of escaping and running away from it, right. In the meantime, getting that pendulum swinging in their brain again of up regulation Uh and down regulation. So I thought that story was a really powerful one that you know people likely will um, resonate with, and Mm -hmm. I want people to know there are techniques out there, and the headband that I that I encourage people to purchase ends up being $212, you know, $212 is a low investment. There's tons of science behind it out of research. One institutes, big research coming from big, you know, uh, institutions that are respected that this thing Mm -hmm. actually works. And so now I have people around the world that are using this headband, whether they work with me or not, to Mm -hmm. be able to get themselves into this regulated state at home. You know, they can do it at home. With a low investment. So, you know, I think our thinking is alike there that this going to a neuromodulation technique before you have to try to, you know, use strategies can be a really powerful um, right. approach. I don't know if you have a thought on that. And then we can wrap up because I appreciate sure. your time and our time is Of ending.
1: course, of course. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I, I feel that we're learning so much all the time. And yet, as much as we know, we really don't know. We're on a steep learning curve around addictions and compulsive behaviors. And, and it's exciting that we've learned so much in, in the 30 years that I've been in, in the field. But um, I think that that sometimes it does take some trial and error. There's not a cookie cutter answer for every single person. And so sometimes different people have to try different things. and and hopefully can hang in there and, and keep on trying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I try to encourage people to start the journey, you know, going back to that idea, start the journey. And just because it becomes fun, you know, and I overextend the word fun. I always have, I've been teaching at the university for you know 30 years. They're like, and my students would always be like, is that really fun? And I'm like, well, it can be once you get going, it's engaging. And, you know, it becomes part of the journey. And, uh, And I will wrap up with the outro that I accidentally used one time, but we'll get there in a second. But I want to share with you, I always tell people to control their brain or it will control them. And Mm -hmm. what I mean is a dysregulated brain, especially if it becomes significantly out there in the uptick, and usually it's the uptick, you know, people are stressed out and, it can really run them. It begins running yes. the show. And, you know, I talk about it as the hijacker and you said the brain gets hijacked. It's hijacked by this need to bring down the heat of that upregulation. Right. And then it controls you. It drives you back. That's what a compulsion and it, it drives you back. And, you know, I read very similar verbiage in your book where, you know, I the line I use is control your brain or it will control you. Yeah. And the controlling of the brain is, getting back to a regulated state, and then being able to stay there. And you say that, reclaim your regulation, that it's an imbalance in your brain. We know that from the science, an imbalanced use of electrical energy and of neurotransmitters. So when you decide to enter into recovery, you're really reclaiming your regulation, and then you're holding on tight to it for the rest of your life. And people ask me all the time, like, you know, am I going to have to stay away from my sexual behaviors? Am I going to have to think about them and worry about them and stay away from them forever? And my answer to that is you have to remain vigilant, but the vigilance is making sure you stay regulated and reclaiming your regulation and then making sure that's a priority because you talk about relapse is much more likely when the more dysregulated and, you know, in the business, it's hungry, angry, lonely, and tired are four real you know, right. pushes in that direction. Um, so do you have any thoughts to wrap up? Because I really appreciate your time. I could stay here all day. Honestly, <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I I, so I, just,
1: I appreciate our conversation because not all, not only are we like-minded people, but I really experience your passion, and that's really what I bring as well, which is the um, desire to destigmatize sexual compulsivity and the desire to help one person at a time.
0: yeah and that's exactly why I'm here this I call it my passion project which is ironic that you yeah. use the same term that I had no idea this was going to become a calling for me and I think the best callings are the ones that <laughs> you have no idea until you're doing it and you're doing it you know, a lot. And then you're like, hmm, maybe I should just do this always. And yeah. it really is so important to me on a personal level and then on a professional level. And I felt like I, when it, when it crashed into my world, I felt perfectly poised to go out there and try to help people. And I am establishing the nonprofit um, two main goals. And then we'll wrap up is like, I've already told you to create sex ed programs and yeah. I have programs out there for prevention I don't know if you've seen, I've created a, a website called pornbrainreboot.org mm-hmm. and on it, it is exactly what we're talking about here. It's a program, it's a digital program, um, but then there's a group with me to provide the support <coughs> and the emotional uh, you know, regulation, but it's built on neuromodulation, on positive psychology, mindfulness, and cognitive behavioral therapy strategies. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then uh, at the same time, I want to be able to go out to other organizations. So many people go right. to their religious leaders that don't know how yeah. to help them. So I intend right. on making a digital product that can teach leaders of these big organizations that they're heads for all these other people who will confide in them. And then they don't know what to tell them. And if I can help educate those people and point them in the direction of the the right resources, like we've talked about, I can hopefully make a global impact. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you so much for joining me, enjoyed myself. And I know people are going to get so much out of this. Um, Thank you everybody. And remember, control your brain or it'll control you.